Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hear it not, Duncan, for it is a knell that summons thee to heaven or to hell. Welcome to Syndicate, a film and TV podcast. From our screens to your watch list, we gather to share and discuss your next favorite. Join us as we want you to spend less time scrolling and more time watching. And now, here's your host. Hello and welcome to another episode of Syndicate. I'm your host, Armand Haddad. Today we are talking about the Joel Cohen film adaptation of Macbeth in his 2021 film, The Tragedy of Macbeth. But before we kill the king and seize power, I am joined by returning guest, filmmaker Cam Lewis. Cam, welcome back to the show. Thanks. I'm excited to be here and talk about this awesome film. Yeah, I'm glad you're back. And we are talking about an A24 distributed film, our favorite company. (laughs) And they made a Shakespearean adaptation. So before we get into Joel Cohen's film, I have to ask, what was your introduction to Shakespeare? Ooh, oh, that's a great question. You know, it probably was Romeo and Juliet in high school English class, I think. would probably (laughs) have been the first thing. So read the play, watched one of the old movies. How about you? You know, similar. Um, Funny enough, my grade school did their own version of Macbeth. Um, Oh, wow. I don't really remember. Interesting choice for grade school. (laughs) It is. And, you know, I don't, it's been so long. I don't really remember if they like whitewashed it, if they like, oh, this person isn't dead. They're sleeping. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. Yeah. (laughs) All I remember was. We had like a stage. It was it was all black. Uh, everyone wore like it looked like potato sacks. Everyone was barefoot. <laughs> it was a very minimalistic production, and that's all I remember. I don't remember anything of the story. Um, and my introduction to Shakespeare was similar to you, uh, Romeo and Juliet, uh, English class. And you know, other than that, 
I'm a total noob when it comes to Shakespeare. Like, I don't really know much about his works other than Romeo and Juliet, you know, just a little bit of Macbeth. And I'm going to let you in on this right now. This was my first time even seeing an adaptation of Macbeth. So this oh, was okay. like, I'm getting my feet wet with nice. Macbeth with this movie. And I thought that was a great choice because this was a fantastic film. Oh, yeah, I thought so, too. And I, I have had a few other, like, I've seen some theater productions of things like A Midsummer Night's Eve, and uh, I did watch the 2015 version of Macbeth as well in preparation for this new version. But, but before that, I hadn't seen any adaptation of Macbeth. So wow. it was interesting uh, seeing that. But I, I guess I'm curious then, like, what was your interaction or experience with the Shakespearean English since they kept the wording of, of that original language? So with this film, I went in completely blind. You know, I'm a big fan of A24. I'm a big fan of Denzel Washington. And I, I think I saw like some stills. I didn't even mm-hmm. see the trailer for this. Oh, wow. Okay. I just saw some stills and I was nice. like, I'm sold. I want to see this. I saw The Green Knight um, last year mm-hmm. and I was blown away with uh, David Laurie's like interpretation of this Arthurian legend. So mm-hmm. I trust A24 to do the same thing with Shakespeare. And going into it, Right off the bat, old English. And I was like, <laughs> whoa. <laughs> I was not expecting that. I was like, okay, quickly, I need to sh- shift my brain from like yes. modern to yep. old. And that's mm-hmm. the only way I can even get through this film is yeah, and to understand like, what's happening. Yeah. Not even think in modern terms, but like use that language that they're speaking, which is essentially this long poem. Yes. Because like yep. I like to think old English people back hundreds or 400 years ago didn't speak like that, that this is more of a, a poem, mm-hmm. you know, a play, kind of like when we watch movies now, like normal people don't talk like they do in film. That's, not how, that's yeah. not how you and I would talk if we were mm-hmm. to talk normally. So it's like, okay, maybe it's just poetry. So yeah, it's like yeah. one giant I mean, There's a certain meter and rhyme to it as well. So it definitely has that aspect to it. And I think that that's a helpful state of mind to be in as you approach it. And I have to say, well, I, I one thing reading in in English class in high school, I remember there'd be like footnotes that would explain certain like turns of phrase or idioms that they were using. And it's like, oh, this means blah, 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 in more plain English. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> so while watching the movie, both versions I saw uh, was like, yeah, I wish I had footnotes right now. So that I could be like, what do they mean when they say that? Or subtitles. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Subtitles, bare minimum. Mm-hmm. I, I, like, you know, like theater I went to, um, they had that option for like, closed captioning and like i'm trying to imagine how they would do that like do they give you like special goggles to wear i've always wondered that too yeah i've never been to a closed caption film so i'm not sure how it works because they certainly don't have them on the screen because mm-hmm. like the only time i've seen a film with like subtitles other than being like a foreign film right is that i was overseas in lebanon mm-hmm. and like they had Arabic sub it was a Nicolas Cage movie. Oh wow. <laughs> Don't ask how I ended up in that theater. <laughs> but they had uh, subtitles of Arabic and then above it subtitles in French and then the film is in English. It was okay. wow. It was intense. Layers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of layers. Um but like with this film Tragedy of Macbeth, it would have been nice to have subtitles just uh, so I can like read, but I think that would have detracted from the visual aesthetic of this film. 
I do agree with that. Yeah. And I definitely cheated because since I watched the 2015 version at home a week before, I did watch that with subtitles. And so I definitely had a little bit more nice. understanding of like the overarching story going into this mm. version of it that definitely helped. But if you rewatch it, yeah, doing it with subtitles, I think is worth it now that you've had the visual experience without. But yeah, good point. Right. Like I went into this completely blind. I didn't even know the story of Macbeth. And mm -hmm. like what was interesting is when I was sitting in the theater watching it, there's many moments like because like everything is derivative from Shakespeare that a lot of the moments in this uh, play become pop culture like moments like yeah. one with the three witches. Mm -hmm. I saw that and I was like, oh, I stood up and I was like, I know what that is. Yeah, I got yeah. the reference. I didn't do that, but <laughs> I was sitting there. I was like, oh, I know what that is. I felt like Steve Rogers, like, oh, I got that reference. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's amazing how many things really are from Shakespeare nowadays and like modern storytelling that we just take for granted. And that was actually an interesting thing going into this. It, I was surprised to hear that one of the Coen brothers was directing a Shakespeare movie. And I was like, I don't know what that's going to turn out like, because that doesn't sound like the typical material that they would do or that I associate with them. But then after watching it and like figuring out what the story is, it's like, oh, that kind of is like a Coen film because it's about a husband wife that go together, commit a murder, and then things spiral out of control. And it's actually pretty similar to a Coen Brothers film. So right. yeah, I, I definitely agree. I was surprised by how much of it is is present now in modern stories and films that really just can trace back all the way to a Shakespeare play. Right. Cause like I was sitting there watching it and like I was sitting there and I was thinking, hmm, I could see where George R. R. Martin got a lot of his inspiration from. Mm, yeah. <laughs> because like he talks a lot about like, oh, I I just took history of England and just, you know, made it, you know, crank it up to eleven. And I'm watching the Shakespeare play, and I'm like, I also think you copied some notes from Macbeth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's quite likely. Yeah, because I see like, I was like, okay, that's inspiration for the Red Wedding. That's inspiration mm -hmm. for like the War of the Five Kings. And it's like, okay. <laughs> but it's kind of like a no-brainer. It's like, duh, of course he would take ideas from that. It's it's Shakespeare. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm sure Shakespeare took things from even older stories and it it all, all traces back somewhere, I suppose. Right. Everyone's copying each other. <laughs> <laughs> so before we go any further into Macbeth, listeners on the show know what time it is. It's time for some elevator pitches. Please stand clear of the closing door. So Cam, since you've been on the show before, you know how to do this. But for those that don't know, if you're selling a movie on a friend, you really only have 60 seconds to do so. So here on Syndicate today, I'm going to have you, Cam, summarize Macbeth within one minute while avoiding major spoilers. Are you ready? I am ready. Oh, okay. avoiding major spoilers, though. All right. All right. I'm going to do my <laughs> it's gonna best. going to be a little tough. Here we go. Yep. Act one info only. Great. Okay. <laughs> We're going to start in three, two, one, go. All right. Lord Macbeth is a successful Scottish uh, warrior. He is a, a, I can't remember the term they use now, an earl or something of a particular portion of the land. And he, after successfully winning a battle, ends up getting a prophecy from some witches, uh, maybe one witch, maybe multiple witches, depending. <laughs> and this uh, gives him the idea that maybe, well, the witches just straight up tell him, you're going to be king. And so he then tries to figure that out, talks with his wife, uh, Lady Macbeth, and they have to come together to figure out a plan for how this prophecy is going to come true or how they're going to make that prophecy come true. But then uh, once they begin enacting that plan, things start unfolding and spiraling out of control and more and more extreme action has to be taken in order to secure the prophecy and we see that unfold 
with 10 seconds to spare. Good job, Cam. So I had no idea going into this film. This was like filled with betrayal and intrigue Mm -hmm. and prophecy. And it's like this climb to power that Denzel Washington's character, Macbeth, uh, goes on after he learns like the fates, the course of history that he is about to embark upon that is foretold to him by this witch. And I do like how Joel Cohen reinterprets the original uh, story of Macbeth because in Macbeth, it's three witches, three mm-hmm. distinct individuals. And I think him having to be this singular entity that can and later in the movie appears back to Macbeth, but in three forms, I think mm. it's genius and like subtly lifts up the magic aspect of this story. I totally agree. It adds that otherworldly element to it that just having three otherwise what would appear is just like women actually feels more like right. there's that magical element to it and uh, plays into yeah a little bit of the madness element that Denzel Washington's Macbeth is going through. Yeah, because like even like with the witch in particular, it's kind of androgynous. Like it can either be a woman or a man because like when we first encounter the witch, it's clearly like a woman figure, Mm -hmm. a little decrepit, a little old, dehydrated with her chapped lips. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I noticed that. (laughs) And uh, later in the film, it's almost like male figures. It's almost like these more masculine figures because like all of her feminine features are kind of like hidden between like, the cowl and like mm-hmm. the robe and it's you don't really know that it's a woman it could be a man for all we know yeah and i think that's key in the story of like quote the shape-shifting aspect of this character because throughout this film which i thought was very interesting because like the first shot we have this all white screen and like the film comes into focus and you see crows or ravens And throughout the entire film, we see crows and ravens. Mm -hmm. And it's only at the end of the movie where I realized, like, I think there's symbology with this uh, raven figure. (laughs) (laughs) And I don't know about you, but I think it's tied to the witch character. Mm -hmm. I think that that's apropos. Uh, It's interesting. I read uh, you bring up this idea of the, like, shifting identity and, like, what this witch is trying to communicate and things to Macbeth. And I was reading an interview with Joel Cohen and the cinematographer Bruner, Bruno Delbonel, I think is how you pronounce his last name, uh, in American Cinematographer. And they were talking about how a lot of the visual aesthetic of the film as well was playing with that movement back and forth between uh, the choices that were being made and how they were deciding to, like, Macbeth regretting some of his decisions but still having to move forward in light of what he had done. And I think that that all plays in. And like you say, that is embodied then in the um, pure black raven symbology and her symbolism, as well as the witches and her ability to change form. So I think that that switching back and forth plays into that throughout the whole film in a lot of different layers, both visually and plot wise and through some of those symbols. Yeah, like the visual, like Joel Cohen and the cinematographer, let's not forget him, like (laughs) they're direction with this uh adaptation of Macbeth is so good like this is how you um show Shakespeare on film like the film is in black and white uh it uses I mean I would say no color but there is color in it black and white in 50 (laughs) shades of gray (laughs) but like everything with like the contrast with the shadowing Mm -hmm. and like the set pieces like 
throughout this entire movie, I'm watching it and I'm like, oh my God, every, you can take a frame, Mm -hmm. pop it out at any point of this film. And it's a work of art. It's like, I was watching a painting. Absolutely. uh, Like I was like walking through, you know, the art Institute and like the entire movie, every single frame could be a painting within Mm -hmm. that museum. Um, It was a very striking uh, movie and I thought it did a great job um, showing the drama Mm -hmm. being portrayed on film. Um, Have you seen, so you mentioned that you've seen Romeo and Juliet. Mm -hmm. Was it the one with uh, Leonardo DiCaprio? No, it was an older version than that. So I have not seen the Leonardo one. (laughs) You've heard of it though. Yes, I do know of it. Oh my God. So I saw that uh, when I was a teenager and I was like, what the hell am I watching? <laughs> because like, for those that don't know, it's this modernized version of Romeo and Juliet where they have, it's, it's set in modern day. They have guns, but like the dialogue is all old English and famously Hot Fuzz made fun of it in. Oh, nice. Uh, I didn't even know that was a joke in Hot Fuzz. Yeah, like, because it was Romeo and Juliet, modernized, uh, same aesthetic. And it's like, it's it's like, why? Why would you do that? And it's like, the color is even like super saturated where it looks like a Michael Bay film, uh, mm-hmm. a la Transformers. Yeah. Where it's like super cranked up uh, color and uh, it's like orange the and teal. like MTV teals. version of Romeo and Juliet. Exactly. <laughs> it, it was an MTV version of Romeo and Juliet. And Joel Cohen very ingeniously did not do that. Yeah. Should I even say it was a genius move? It's just the appropriate move to make yeah. when adapting this type of subject matter. It's like, I know you're being like stylized and like, you know, you're doing essentially the kitsch version of Shakespeare by <laughs> making it in modern day and like yeah. super uh, colorful, but it's, it just doesn't work for yeah. Yeah. the subject matter. Mm-hmm. And with Joel Cohen's uh, interpretation of it, by having it be black and white, by having it be almost minimalistic and like, having uh, the actors be front and center with the backdrop being not plain, but like minimal and beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very minimal, um, for sure. Abstract almost. Yes. Uh, yeah. The use of uh, lighting and shadows like just paints this beautiful picture on the screen. And it's almost otherworldly too, because like I've seen stills of like other um, adaptations and like some mm-hmm. are like, you know, it's, it's Scottish. It's called the Scottish play. Um, and it's sometimes set in Scotland where it's like mm-hmm. this beautiful background and rolling hills and scenery. And I think that would have once again detracted from the story being told and Joel Cohen by having it be focused in on the drama mm-hmm. was the way to do it. Yeah, he actually mentions in that uh, interview I was reading that the choice to do it in black and white was first and foremost to make it not realistic, to take that step away from realism, That wow. especially the 2015 film went like really into realism as far as like real sets and like on location and all of the costume design and everything was much more authentic to that time period. Uh, and it's interesting that you say it was like the way that it was painted on the screen, they actually used real painted backgrounds um, in the studio to do wow. that rather than doing so like the crossroads scene that's an actual like massive painted background that was actually back there that was then lit so it's i think really impressive how it was put together and i i was struck by how well it seemed to mimic theater and some of those minimalist sets and uh, the way that you would actually see it on stage while also striking a balance between using very cinematic techniques because obviously in theater you don't get things like close-ups 
but even in utilizing the academy aspect ratio the close-up becomes this like really dramatic portrait of a person because they fill the whole frame there's not that additional wider screen that then shows the background and so they used a significant amount of of really beautiful cinematography and uh and shot design combined with that more minimalist abstract set that i think gave that theatrical feeling while still very much still being a film it wasn't them filming a stage production but rather it became a film in and of itself right like that is so interesting i had no idea and i could kind of you know it gave this feeling of like say like you're watching like you know 1960s star trek or any film from the 1960s or 70s they have this aesthetic to them because they're being shot on a soundstage Mm -hmm. so like whatever background they need it's painted it's yeah. a painting. And with this film, I had that vibe where I was mm-hmm. like, this feels like an older film. Mm-hmm. Like it's deliberately made to look old. And I think that's because they did those backdrops and it yeah. definitely worked because like I was in that, you know, mind mindset where I was like, oh, this is like kind of like a, an older film. I had mm-hmm. no idea that they painted the backgrounds that's amazing yeah yeah and another amazing aspect to that uh in the sense of the, of the balance that they struck between that bruno del Bonello is talking about how they wanted that those impressions of old film but they intentionally used really sharp lenses and high resolution and they actually shot in color and then later changed it to black and white because the different hues of blues and greens and reds that they would use in the lighting would actually then show up as different levels of black and white and gray in the final version. So they were doing a lot of color work on set in order to alter what the black and white would look like at different points in the film. And so again, they really brought together expertly this sense of the new and the old and found a really great middle ground between those. Cause I don't know, it's, I was really struck by how sharp a lot of the film was. Um, right. And again, in those close ups, like very sharp. So it didn't have that element of vintage, but still gave that overall impression of we're on a sound stage. This is kind of a, a production that's happening in front of me. Uh, right. which, yeah, it was a great balance. I thought, wow, that is incredible. Like that reminds me of, you know, that old TV show, the Adams family. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a black and white show and it's very, you know, Adams family, Gothic. Yep. <laughs> the actual sets that they filmed on was extremely colorful because they tried to get very specific shades of grays and mm, blacks. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And it sounds like Joel Cohen did the same thing mm-hmm. and the cinematographer. Yeah. So that, man, you know, that takes a very specific skill set to shoot in color and then mm-hmm. turn it black and white. Yeah. And to know how that's going to map out and why you're making those color choices for how it will show up in black and white. It's, yeah, certainly beyond me. So, yeah, I'm impressed. I'm just, I'm just wondering, like, okay, like when they were shooting, did they have like a special monitor uh, by the camera that's, in black and white and like ones in color. And I don't know, but like, yeah, if I recall it, correctly, uh, Bruno Delbanel mentioned doing tests beforehand. So they had mm-hmm. done some lighting tests to see how that would end up. And then, uh, the colorist for the film has worked with the same cinematographer for like the last 20 years or something like that. So they wow. certainly have very clear communication between them and can figure those things out in that sense. I'm sure that was a collaborative effort between those two, but it certainly worked. That is so incredible. So moving from the visual identity of this film, which I think is going to be remembered 
uh, for years to come. Cause like mm-hmm. when I was watching it, I was like, I'm watching cinematic history right now. And I'm yeah. not saying it to be like, like, Oh, this is the greatest film. And then next week, this is the greatest film. Mm-hmm. No, seriously. I think this is going to be remembered for a long yeah. time. I think that in and of itself is a good enough reason to go watch the film is just because of the visual execution. Not that that's the only reason, but it's certainly a sufficient reason. Right. So moving from there, like the actual story being told on screen, which is, what makes like what takes it from like a really cool movie like oh this is like the craft element is amazing mm-hmm. and then when you pair it with like these fantastic actors doing these fantastic portrayals of Shakespeare mm-hmm. it elevates it to a completely other level and i think this is where the movie truly shines is when uh these actors are giving it their best so what did you think of like the ensemble cast uh of this film I thought the cast did a really great job. I think that it was an interesting take. I think in other adaptations from what I've read, and again, in the 2015 version, Macbeth and Lady Macbeth are typically younger, and we get more of that sense of their like young ambition to take over the kingdom and things like that. Whereas in this, they're obviously both much older, and Joel Cohen actually talked about that. Um, I think it was in an interview along with Francis McDormand, who plays Lady Macbeth, and they talked about how... Uh, in Shakespeare, this is like a really good marriage that they're between these two characters. It's like a strong marriage. They get on the same page, work together to do things. Obviously, they're doing bad things, but they are on the same page and working together. Yeah. But I think it takes on a whole different, uh, a whole different perspective or way of approaching this idea of like, is this then like their last chance to become king and queen, and rather than their first chance to have this whole life of success and and royalty. So I think that their performances, uh, obviously just choosing to cast those two in those roles created a lot of that, but I think that they embodied that really well in their performances. Yeah. Denzel Washington as Macbeth was amazing. Like that's such a great choice and Mm -hmm. you definitely feel the weight of his performance. Like, like you said, like I had no idea because I had no idea anything about Macbeth before yeah. watching this film, but like I could see why typically people would go younger. Mm-hmm. Um, but like having it be an aged lord, uh, becoming king, becoming a ruler, and then uh, the fear of, you know, dying and losing the kingdom is definitely an interesting story to tell because it's it's not a story told very often. It's usually a young person's tale. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, for example, Game of Thrones, most of the kings in that story are young. They're not older. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's, The old kings that are the ones getting assassinated and yes. done away with. It. Yeah. <laughs> so what's interesting with the Macbeth story is, say like this this story was, was made today, like you would get mm-hmm. like, I deserve to be the king and like this like ambition towards... Yes. Uh, becoming royal but with this it's like almost he almost doesn't want to be king mm-hmm. like he was pushed by his wife yeah and there's that the whole king. scene where he's like second guessing like should i even do it uh, right. and naming reasons why he shouldn't do it mm-hmm. and yeah so i think that's a really interesting back and forth that gets played with uh, through those performances yeah and when he actually does kill the king oof, that is pretty graphic it was graphic and brutal and this entire story is pretty brutal too it is and it just gets worse from there like the spiraling out of control really spirals out of control it's no holds barred (laughs) yes 
like I could see where the Game of Thrones got their inspiration from when mm-hmm. uh, doing this. So with the death of the king, Macbeth becomes the king. And with the prophecy that was prophesied to him was no man born of a woman can kill you. Mm-hmm. So that kind of means like, I mean, everyone's born of a woman. So, right. like, so then I no can't one. die. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that's kind of like subverted because at the end he's dueling uh, Macduff, which mm-hmm. is the other Lord. And it is what happens with his character. Yeah. So Macduff, uh, it, at some point, I think the, the witches tell Macbeth, like fear Macduff. And so he begins to enact a plan to go after him and Macduff escapes to England to try to stay safe. Uh, however, I guess this is like it may be into spoiler territory. Is that? That is fine. Let's do it. Acceptable. All right, great. So spoiler um, alert for a 400 year old story. Yeah, right. Yeah, fair <laughs> enough. Uh, Macbeth orders that Macduff's castle gets assaulted but he's already gone and has left his family so his family gets murdered and so when he learns this news Macduff heads back to scotland with an english army behind him and uh duncan king duncan's son malcolm and they're gonna retake the kingdom and so he ends up dueling with Macbeth in this kind of epic one-on-one duel up on the ramparts and we learn then from Macduff that uh, he kind of technically wasn't born of women because he was what well, I think the line is ripped from my mother's womb early or something like that, right. which I guess I didn't totally know what that means. Like did his like I didn't think they had C-sections back then, but maybe they had something like that. Or what does that exactly entail? I guess uh, that I'm is a sure, C-section, but, but yeah. <laughs> medieval C-section. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, and so it turns out that Macduff, in fact, is the one who can kill Macbeth. And, uh, and it's interesting how the duel kind of ends up there is Macbeth just resigns is like, Oh, well then I'm done fighting you. Cause you're the one that's going to kill me anyways. And I think that kind of like brings to a head the fact that he had bought into these prophecies so much that when it finally, like he realized, Oh, it's just prophecy that you're going to kill me. So go for it. And he just kind of stops fighting him at that point. Is that how you interpreted it? I interpret yeah. <laughs> it a little bit differently. That's oh, interesting. I'd love to hear it then. Yeah. Because like, so as everything is falling apart, which we'll get into, he's fighting Macduff and it didn't seem like he was relenting at all. Like, because like they were really going at like Mm -hmm. Macbeth is a great swordsman, even at his advanced age. And Macduff is noticeably younger than Mm -hmm. uh, Macbeth. So he's definitely whoever Macbeth was, he was definitely a seasoned swordsman. Yeah. And as they're fighting on the ramparts, uh, Macbeth's crown gets uh, taken off his head. Mm-hmm. And as he goes to grab it, he turns to Macduff and Macduff slices his head off or slices his throat. You know, I think you're right. I think I'm conflating that with the other version of the film. Because <laughs> uh, now that you mention that, yeah, that's true. And I think that that's, that's an interesting choice because it shows that his inability to let go of trying to be king because right. like that's literally oh what gets God. him killed yeah it's because oh he God. can't even not have the crown on for a second and then because he wastes time doing that he's dead oh that's that's such great visual storytelling i didn't even pick up on that until right now but yeah you're totally right like um because he begrudgingly not even begrudgingly like it's it's almost like he didn't want to be king he did it out of obligation because 
his wife wanted him to be king, like kill, assassinate the king. Like I'll, I'll do away with the guards and like, mm-hmm. I will like, we're plotting to take yes. the crown. <laughs> and once he has the crown, he's like, I'm not going to give it up. Like, yeah. Even at the end, he's still holding on to the crown mm-hmm. uh, to his detriments because it lets his guard down. Yes. So, yeah, oh, that's, that is so, oh, that is, that is great storytelling. Don't yes, say. I agree. Yeah, that was that was clever. And it's interesting. I mean, obviously, I, I got them mixed up, but it's a totally different than ending to the other interpretation of the film. And again, I haven't seen a theatrical version of it. So I don't know what maybe the classical in quotes, version of the ending is. But obviously, the two most recent film adaptations took a very different approach to how they colored Macbeth's final response to this situation. Right. And that's Interesting in and of itself, because like this is such, I mean, this story has stood the test of time because of the way you can interpret and play around with these characters. Uh, because as you're describing in this 2015 version, Macbeth at the end was like, you know what, I've, I've come to the end of the road and mm-hmm. my story is done. I'm done. I can't do this anymore. And then with uh, Joel Cohen's version. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. He's still holding on to he will be king. Yeah, and I almost feel like that plays into more of the sort of madness, the descent into madness that Denzel Washington's character goes through um, because he starts out pretty level-headed, but then Mm -hmm. as things... uh, go throughout the film he gets more and more unhinged right all and so like from that initial point of indecision once he makes that decision it feels like he's just on that track and now it's just gonna spiral out of control and he's not gonna let go and i think it's kind of interesting i think that almost plays into this sense of self-fulfilling prophecy because Mm. i guess it's almost that like the first matrix thing where it's like would you have knocked that off the counter if i hadn't told you watch out for the (laughs) base you know uh and so would he have even tried to assassinate the king if the witches hadn't told him that. And so does the prophecy only work because it was spoken? And it feels like he doubles down on that, is that all of these new actions are only happening because of the prophecies. It's not like the prophecy exists as a separate thing that this was going to happen anyways. It almost feels like what people say about us or what we decide about ourselves is what's driving our actions. Right. Or as Christopher Nolan would put it, inception (laughs) (laughs) and even though we're going uh backwards um i think it's important to talk about what led up to this descent because like he did start off like a level-headed and he was doubting whether or not to kill the king and to have that ascension towards the throne um but 
what happened after that was he became increasingly paranoid because like once he had the power, he didn't want to give it up. Mm-hmm. So uh, adjacent to his lordship, uh, we have Banquo and Fleance, his son, and Macbeth orders his... I don't know what to call him. I guess like the litter, the little finger uh, character. Uh, yeah, just like, the, like the roughnecks, uh, <laughs> some sort of. Or which one are you talking about, Ross? I'm talking about Ross, like the the cloak. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. That was my favorite character. He was so cool. He was. He was really intimidating and sly, <laughs> and yeah. Right. So like, so Macbeth orders Ross, accompanied by uh, the two. Um, I guess hired hands yeah. to kill Banquo and Fleance because they pose a threat to his kingship. So, in the cover of the night, they go off to assassinate both of them. And I would say that scene was probably one of the more intense scenes of this entire film. Yeah, when they uh, there's the moonlit torch lit sword fight yes. they're trying to take out Banquo and then Ross searching for Fleance in the field behind mm-hmm. the, the house afterwards. So yeah, that was definitely a tense moment. Just, I would point out though, that I thought this was really interesting. Those two hired hand characters definitely felt like they were straight out of a Coen brothers film, the way that they, <laughs> you know, talked and reacted to things and they were kind of silly. And I think that that's an interesting from what I understand, the characters like that exist in a lot of Shakespeare plays. And I think that mm. this film did a good job of bringing out some of that humor that existed in the original right. source material that especially the 2015 one played everything super straight. And mm. it was even darker in some ways uh, than this one. So I think that the, that was another point at which Joel Cohen did a good job of kind of bridging the theatrical and cinematic versions of that really well. But yes, this fight at the crossroads was very... Uh, very intense. And I think that's where the kind of the, the most intimidating aspect of Ross's character came out, especially afterwards, as he's stalking through this wheat field looking for Fleance. Right. Like, and that entire scene, even the way it ends, uh, is up into interpretation because, like, not everything is spelled out. And mm. that's what I also appreciate with Joel Cohen you know, creating the screenplay out of this play um, Mm -hmm. is that it's not over-explained. Even visually, it's not over-explained. What I appreciate with the script is that it really showcases Joel Cohen's trust in the audience because, like, it doesn't dumb anything down. It doesn't Mm -hmm. over-explain anything. Mm -hmm. Uh, It treats the audience as if they're smart and we understand what's happening. And with some of the scenes, like with the ending of... Uh, the Ross character going through the wheat fields, trying to find Fleance by torchlight. And when he does find Fleance, it just does a hard cut to the next yep. scene. And I appreciate that so much because it's like, it leaves the audience like, wait, what just happened? Mm-hmm. Did he kill him? Did he not kill him? Yep. Yep. And by the end of the film, we find out what truly happens. And it's so satisfying because it's like, oh man, because like, if you were to do that scene any other way, you wouldn't have that payoff at the end mm-hmm. of the film. Absolutely. Yeah, it was a great setup, created more suspense throughout the rest of the film, I think. And I, it's interesting what that does for Ross's character as well, which is it kind of gives him a lot more power than I think mm. otherwise exists because he's not the foremost character. He often seems to be like serving at right. the will of others, but he's actually the one enacting this whole additional side story of saving somebody who now is going to still be 
um, a potential uh, what a claimant to the throne even after Malcolm comes back right. because of the prophecy Banquo was given. So yeah, it's very yes. interesting how that whole storyline imbues Ross's character with more power. Wow. Yeah, like, and that's how I, that's why when I described him as like the little finger character where like he's like in the background mm-hmm. pulling all the strings almost. Exactly, yes, yes. And that's what makes his character so intriguing is, so I'm assuming in the 2015 version, his character was kind of, was was it like subdued at all? Was it because like, I feel like with this interpretation of Macbeth, like Joel Cohen like really tinkered with the Ross character and like made him uh, more prominent as he would be not so much in like other interpretations. Yeah. Is that com- true? Compared to the 2015 version, it, Ross was a much stronger character because honestly, while I was watching uh, the Joel Cohen version, I couldn't, I was trying to figure out who that character was from the previous film and I couldn't place him or figure out like, who was that? And like, what was that person doing? So definitely played a much more side character role in the 2015 version. And in this one, like you said, he was, uh, became a much more major character in and of his own right. Uh, Even at the end of the 2015 one, Fleance just like wanders up at the end and takes, uh, I think Macbeth's sword or somebody's sword at the end and then just wanders off into the fog and Ross has nothing to do with it. So that was definitely <laughs> a totally different interpretation of how that all went down. So yeah, it's a little anticlimactic and I don't, I agree. That. Yeah. Yeah. It felt purposeless and kind of random, but here it's clear that Ross <laughs> had this plan at least right. all the way since he was tracking down Fleance and, uh, and it's cool to see that feel a lot more purposeful. Right. So Oh, so good. So like after that assassination attempt, um, what happens afterwards? I believe that's where the, that's uh bank was supposed to show up to dinner and then he doesn't show up to dinner cause you know, he's dead and Macbeth begins seeing visions. And I think this is like the most clear beginning of his descent into madness where he starts thinking that he sees Banquo stalking the halls of the castle mm-hmm. and starts trying to chase after him and attack him. But it really turns out it's just a raven flying around right. him. Yeah. Cause that scene where Macbeth is at dinner goes crazy, starts screaming, Oh my God, <laughs> be gone or whatever he says. Yeah. And he's like chasing this, uh, wraith, revenant, ghost, yes. spirit throughout the halls of the castle. And then it's revealed that it's a crow, a raven. Yeah. So I have to ask, do you think the raven was the witch that prophesied to Macbeth uh, in the beginning of the film? And then once again, when it appeared uh, as three entities, do you think that the raven was the witch tormenting Macbeth. I, I'm not able to ascertain any other thing that the, it could represent. So it definitely feels like that's true to me, that it is the witch um, in the sense it's shown that she can change form. I think it makes sense that, yeah, she has in some way changed form into this raven. And yeah, I don't know, I don't know 100%. If you go back to maybe that self-fulfilling prophecy thing, if the witch really is just kind of pulling these strings the whole time or like, saying and doing what needs to happen to make this all play out in in that way, then I guess I could see like, that's why is that his descent into madness required him to be seeing these visions and things like that. And that's her motive. But I don't know. What do you think about that interpretation or what her motive would have been for that? 
Maybe she was just doing it for the lulls. Maybe she was like, <laughs> let me just screw around with these people. Yeah. No, I mean, it could seriously. be, especially with her, like, she just like saying weird poems about having a sailor's toe at the beginning. <laughs> so she does seem a little just crazy. Right. Um, so, so like watching this, I was like, only at the end of the movie where looking back, it's like, okay, I think the witch was like pulling the, like the witch was like, influencing Macbeth's life for Mm -hmm. what reason maybe to plunge Scotland into turmoil which does happen Uh, Mm -hmm. you have uh, even this like battle scene uh, near the the end of the film and why is she doing that I don't know maybe 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 she's just an agent of chaos cam that could be and maybe she's like the joker yeah, yeah. And perhaps more research into the lore of witches at that time or what Shakespeare was, like what his audience would have understood a witch to be. Maybe that is just exactly what they would have interpreted it as. I, I do wonder, or I guess I can imagine now we could do a whole prequel of why the witch is doing this and like what, like, it, you know, I'm imagining like the Wizard of Oz and Wicked kind of a thing. And mm. so maybe they built a castle on her land. And so she's mad about that. Oh and <laughs> do a whole prequel. <laughs> oh, she was like, this is my land. I shall curse thee. Yes. <laughs> that would be, that would actually be pretty cool. I don't know what you would call it though. Maybe the witches. <laughs> oh, that's been taken already. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> uh, so... After that, after that encounter with the Raven, and uh, that's where the movie then pivots to Lady Macbeth, um, because like she has a scene which I did not expect at all, where you know as Macbeth is spiraling downwards mm-hmm. uh, to the underworld, uh, thematically speaking, you have Lady Macbeth also spiraling downwards as well, yeah. and the the climax of her story is kind of similar to um spencer that we watch where uh princess diana was at the top of the stairwell mm-hmm. fantasizing of ending her life entering ender, ending her suffering uh with macbeth lady macbeth is also at the same crossroads so she makes a different decision than our lady uh, diana did uh, would you like to unpack that a little bit yeah, it's interesting. Uh, and, and that whole scene also was kind of not in the 2015 version, at least like the sleepwalking portion of it. And so it was played in a completely different way, which was another, um, I think it just painted the character in a totally different way. From what I understand, the sleepwalking scene is specific to a lot of the more like the historical renditions of the play and, mm. and this idea that she's wandering off. Um, it was interesting seeing the servants watching her and it took me, I think, till the end of that scene to realize that it was the servant and then actually the doctor who was watching to see, like, how is this all unfolding? And then they're like, what are you going to do to help her? And he's trying to talk about uh, what they what they can do for her. But it was definitely a really interesting perspective on that, this sleepwalking Lady Macbeth. Mm. That's interesting. Like the doctor and the servant is like, what's going to happen? Yeah. <laughs> she going to do it? My bet is that she is not going to do it. But yeah, like, so she's at the top of the stairway. So she's sleepwalking. She gets to the top of the stairway and we don't see it happen, but we see the aftermath uh, through Macbeth's eyes because as all of this is happening, he is, I forget where he is. Uh, He's somewhere else in the castle and 
one of his uh, men come up to him. It's like, as he's like having this big monologue about like, uh, like the states of that he's in, state mm-hmm. of uh, the realm. Uh, his servant comes up to him. It's like, my lord or your grace, Lady Macbeth is dead. And he's like, what? So then he <laughs> goes and he finds his wife's body at the bottom of the stairway in a pool of blood. Yeah. And I thought that was a very striking image uh, for the film. And I think that was one of the final nails in Macbeth's coffin, so to say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially since she was sort of the ignition for this whole process, that she was the one who came up with the plan right. and convinced him to go through with it. And now that she's gone, that's what feels like the final straw that breaks the camel's back and he then just spirals completely out of control. And that's sort of like on the eve of the battle, right? Is that where that kind of falls in the... Right, because film? like uh, Macduff... Right, it was Macduff allied mm-hmm. with... I, Malcolm and the English, yeah. Yeah, so then they come and which was a really cool moment uh, because it was also prophesized by the witch that not only can you not be killed by a man born of a woman, but also... I think it was like the trees will start walking. Or yeah, it was like until Dunst Hill Wood comes to this, or some <laughs> forest comes to the castle, is the yeah. way that it was worded. So, uh, which of course is impossible. How could the woods come to the castle? <laughs> <laughs> and what they did, which was so cool, so they took like uh, branches and twigs and foliage mm. uh, in their hands and they put them over uh themselves, kind of like how the Spartans would do with their shields mm-hmm. or the Romans to to hide themselves so it looked like the woods were marching towards the castle yeah i thought that was so cool and uh very ingenious and when they do reach the castle that's when all hell breaks loose and Mm -hmm. it's a full-on siege and i do appreciate that joel cohen even with an army attacking the castle he still does it artistically and stylistically because like mm-hmm. you could have just did the easy route. Like, okay, let's just show up like straight up battle. Yep. But he didn't do that. And I do appreciate that because like the, the thing that's should be in the forefront is the acting. That's been the through line of this entire film. Yes. And even with a giant battle in the background, the film is focused in on Macbeth and what he's going through. Absolutely. And I think that choice really makes it, again, more of a character-driven film than this plot-driven film. And and that goes right, again, hand-in-hand with the Academy ratio and that the focus in on a character in a close-up. And I think that that was a, a helpful choice because then by the end, we're not just getting away with a cool fight scene as the climax, but really the climax of Macbeth's character and the final... Um, build up to where his madness has led him so that i think in actuality a bat like seeing the battle take place on mass would have taken away from that and actually downplayed Macbeth's own inner conflict exactly like when i was watching this my one of the most striking moments was when he was at the throne and uh the first swordsman i forget what his name was yeah, I don't know. It kind of seemed like just some random dude. I don't know if he was a specific, <laughs> specific character or not. <laughs> right. It wasn't Macduff. It was. It was. Let's just say it was Macduff Squire. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> um. So like he goes to kill the king, and uh, Macbeth has no weapon on him. 
but this uh, assailant has a sword. Mm -hmm. And as the dude is trying to kill Macbeth, um, what I loved about it was Macbeth was like dodging a sword and like pushing him and like doing more like defensive uh, Mm -hmm. things. And going with the interpretation of like the 2015 film that you explained, I could see like that's when he was like giving up. He was like, you know what? Like, I'm not going to fight back, mm-hmm. but I'm also not going to die. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and he finally gives in at the end and he doesn't take the sword, but like the dude had like a dagger mm-hmm. on the side of him. He took the, he takes the dagger and he like stabs him and like kills him. And like, it's the most satisfying way. It was so cool. <laughs> I was like, Ooh, that's awesome. That's how you do it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think that it's interesting, again, even given the older casting, how clear it is that he is an exceptional warrior and fighter and that that's what got him even into to the position that he was where he could take that first step to try and assassinate the king and take over the kingdom was because of his success thus far and success at the battle just prior to the prophecy with the from the witches. Uh, and so, yeah, that's true all the way up till the end that even in his madness, he still is an expert swordsman. Yeah. And even till his death, like he is an expert swordsman because he fights Macduff and mm-hmm. he doesn't give up. And like we explained earlier with the crown, that was what ended up killing him, like mm-hmm. was his hold on the yeah. throne. He couldn't give it up. And that's what ends up killing him. Yeah. I just love like symbolism behind yeah, it. Yeah, that's great. So good. And as Macbeth is killed, Malcolm is crowned the king. And I don't know the lineage with Malcolm, but like he seemed to be the original king's son. Yeah, he was King Duncan's son. Okay. So like definitely was, I guess, his throne to have anyways. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, but like the ending, would you like to get into the ending with yeah. uh, Ross and Fleance? Yes, let's do it. Okay. So like it's revealed that. Ross did not kill Fleance, but like kept him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and almost, actually paid the old man that lives in the ruined cottage at the crossroads to keep an eye on him, which was right. interesting. Again, sort of like payoff after they set that character up earlier. Right. And he takes Fleance and they ride off uh, away from the kingdom, essentially. And it ends with ravens uh, flying off uh, from the field that they rode upon. and that's how the movie ends and it was such a striking ending and i thought it was a fitting ending to this story too because it's like i think traditionally you did not have that type of ending you it it ended where i don't think even malcolm was crowned king i don't think Uh, we see it now yeah so i think this is a very satisfying ending yeah, in this story. day and age, if you ended a film like this, people would be like, well, when's the sequel coming out? Because obviously <laughs> we need to see Fleance, you know, take over the, the kingdom. So, yeah, it's, it's definitely an interesting choice. And I would be interested to, again, look back and see how open-ended was it in the original uh, version of the play? And did did it come to a more complete ending? Or was that part of Jill Cohen's interpretation? And I, I'm honestly not sure. I wonder if... So when Shakespeare created Macbeth, I wonder if people are like, are you going to make Macbeth too, William? Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Shakespeare was like, mm, 
No, it doesn't. <laughs> I, I will not uh, give in to temptation and make Macbeth yes. too. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Macbeth harder. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. But I do agree. Like the symbolism at the end, I think, is really helpful because we, we've already set up that the witches prophesied to Banquo that he will not be king, but he will be the father of kings. And so we know from that that Fleance will go on to be kings. Like we don't need to show it. And the fact that they like ride over the. Uh, hill and go into that low part and then we don't see ross and fleance anymore we just see the crows come out right calls back to that again if we're going with the symbolism of the mm -hmm. crows and the witches being associated that uh, they're riding off into that prophecy being fulfilled and i think that that still um we can then imagine what happens beyond that we don't need to show it exactly uh like we said earlier, um, it doesn't over-explain anything. I think that's mm -hmm. one of the strengths of this film. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, it doesn't take for granted that the audience doesn't know what's happening. The audience knows what's happening. Mm -hmm. And we can make our own inferences. And I think that's what makes a stronger film because like, it doesn't explain everything. It doesn't spell everything out. It leaves it up to interpretation. and. Yeah. That requires it. the audience to be more engaged with the film. It's not right. something you could just have on in the background while you're on your phone or doing something else. Like you actually need to actively engage with the film right. and that then creates a more rewarding experience. And I think having it be in old English too makes you tune into the film even more because it's mm -hmm. like, not only am I watching the film, I have to pay attention to the dialogue because yes. I have to know what they're saying. <laughs> and I don't think it was that hard to understand what was happening. Yeah, exactly. So the visuals helped and a lot of even the older language was still clear in broad strokes of what was happening. There's right. definitely certain phrases that it's like, that probably meant something to somebody back then, but I don't know what <laughs> they meant when they just said that, but I still get what's going on in the scene. So right. I think they did a great job of still combining or uh, portraying the essential plot elements um, and then through the performances, getting all of that emotional content so that it's still very understandable, even if some of the, the language elements go over my head. Exactly. Exactly. So, Cam, we reached the end of the show. And now we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to get off the fence with some certain topics regarding right. the tragedy of Macbeth. Are you ready? Excellent. I'm so ready. The first question that I have to ask for you today is the tragedy of Macbeth. Would you say that this film is the defining adaptation of the story of Macbeth? Oh, man. Yeah, I haven't seen enough to be able to say. <laughs> I just feel like I'm totally unqualified. Um, I think that it's the best adaptation I've seen. It's the most definitive one that I have encountered. Would you say that it's more true to the story? Because like, you saw the 2015 one, and it's radically different. Than this one like both yeah. stylistically and also mm -hmm. yeah the 2015 portray. one is a beautiful film and i think it's much more approachable to a mass modern audience mm -hmm. so i think uh, people would be more likely if they had uh if they weren't interested in joel cohen weren't interested in black and white films and weren't interested in shakespeare particularly i think that they would still be able to engage with the 2015 version and have a, like a movie experience that they would get something out of it um, and enjoy the film whereas this one i think is much more true to the source material, does more interesting things with it. Um, also in a completely different, but uh, also beautiful way. But I think that um, in that sense, it may just be a little bit more alienating to broader audiences. I can see that because like, it's definitely 
an art house film. Yeah. Um, and modern audiences, general audiences are not going to go see a Shakespearean mm-hmm. uh, movie that's almost four by three yep. in black and white. Um, it's definitely, it doesn't cut any corners to make it appealing to general audiences. And I do appreciate that because I think it's more timeless that way. I would I say think, it. I think that's a good way to put it. Yeah. Which leads into my next question. So do you think uh, the tragedy of Macbeth by Joel Cohen is going to be remembered generations uh, from now? Because like watching it, I got the vibes of the 1928 film, The Passion of Joan of Arc. Mm, I don't know yeah. if you saw that film, but yeah. like, do you think it's going to be remembered a hundred years from now like that film? I think that there's a high degree of likelihood simply because of how distinct it is from other things being made at this time. And I think it stands out in that way. And I think because of that, it probably will. And as far as film adaptations go, I think it's faithful enough, but also distinct enough that that will give it longevity. And it's interesting. You bring up the passion of Joan of Arc, Joel and Bruno actually mentioned that as inspiration. So you're right on with that. Well done. (laughs) I guess I have the eye. Yes. (laughs) Wow. I had no idea. That's really cool. Yeah. But like definitely had those vibes when I was watching. I was like, that's why when I was in the theater watching this, I was like, I am watching cinematic history before Mm. my eyes. Yep. I am here. I am in the moment. And it was amazing. (laughs) Uh, So, but going from there, would you say that Joel Cohen was the perfect director to direct this film? Because like, if you were to give it to some other director, would you would they have done a great job uh, that he did with this film? I think it, he was a particularly good person for this. And again, I think it, it, when I, after watching both versions and then seeing this version, so sort of realizing after the fact that a lot of the films he and his brother have made before this actually fit pretty well with the storyline of Macbeth and also having that humorous element that adds more dimension to the whole film. Uh, I think he ended up being the perfect pick for it. And I wasn't able to find any information about why Ethan didn't help him with this particular film. So I'd be curious (laughs) to someday find some more information about that and just hear what the decision behind that was. But I think that uh, what he has done up to this point prepared him really well to do this version of Macbeth that I don't think somebody else would have simply because they don't have the filmography uh, that Joel Cohen does. So I think it fit together really well. What if Ethan was working on a secret project of a Midsummer's Night Dream? That would be hilarious. Uh, That'd be so funny. (laughs) (laughs) It's like we felt like doing Shakespeare movies, but not together. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) That would be cool. Um, okay, and then final question. Do you think Denzel Washington will be recognized by the Academy for this film? Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 
it. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. That's, I think so, and I think just because the Academy likes this type of content. I think they like Shakespeare. I think they like black and white. I think they like adaptations of older things and more artsy styles like this. And so I think that's definitely going to put him forward in the running for it. But I'm trying to think now who else would even be in the running uh, against him. I'm not sure what's on the shortlist for best actor this year, but I think he's definitely in a good position because I think, yeah, it worked really well. So, yeah, I think he would have a good running because like with this film, it doesn't feel like Oscar bait because like with a lot of movies uh, coming out, they seem to be like engineered for the right. Academy to like right. it, you know, like especially mm-hmm. around like fall and winter. It's yep, like, yep. okay, time to send out the Oscar <laughs> bait films. Uh, with this film, you can tell that there's going to be like, there is a genuine craft element to it. Mm-hmm. Um there's a genuine element of actors giving it their best because of the subject matter and mm-hmm. because they believe in Joel Cohen in this project. So it's kind of like this culmination of like all these things that are making a work of art instead yeah. of like, Hey, we want an accolade. And so we're going to make like this really dramatic film about like, uh, uh, interpersonal problems. It's like, no, this is like, this feels like Michelangelo was resurrected and was like, you're going to make a film okay (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) yeah i agree i think i I think his performance was strong again i think it took on a character that's distinct from some of the other adaptations that i've seen and that he played up that descent into madness really well that felt internal and personal rather than out or external so yeah I, i think i think he may we'll see hopefully so to close the show would you recommend the tragedy of Macbeth as a film to your friends yes i definitely would even just for the experience of seeing something done in this completely distinct way yeah i would recommend it too and i i think this is like the perfect way to have a play be in the film format Mm -hmm. because like uh during the holiday season i was watching uh this old 1980s uh film of the nutcracker and the way they did it was which was great they just filmed the stage. Yeah. <laughs> and it was just a ballet on film. And it's like you're you're on the medium of film, you know? Yeah. Like you could add some cinematic flair to it to make it more of like a film, like yeah. a movie. Yeah. And with the tragedy of Macbeth, it was definitely a play on screen, but mm-hmm. like you had that cinematic moments, like like you were saying, like with the close-ups. Yeah, uh, they used the, the language of cinema to better tell the story. It wasn't just incidental to it. So exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. I think that's how you approach uh, stuff like that. Because like when it goes to the medium of film, you should have that stuff. Yeah. And 
I think it did an excellent job and I would totally recommend it uh, to anyone that would be interested in seeing a Shakespeare that's been modernized in the correct way and not by <laughs> making it you know, Leonardo DiCaprio with guns. Yes, yes. Well said. <laughs> but that's it for this time on Syndicate. We hope you enjoyed yourself. We've been talking about the tragedy of Macbeth. Please check it out where it is available. And now I'm going to take a moment to thank my guest, Cam Lewis, for coming on to the show. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. It was a great film to discuss, and I always love hearing your thoughts about everything we discuss. So thanks. Wow. Thank you. And it's always a pleasure to have you on, Cam. I'm looking forward to having you on again soon. All right. Sounds good to me. <laughs> but if you'd like to keep this conversation going, please add us on your favorite social media platform at Syndicate. That is C-I-N-E-D-I-C-A-T-E. Syndicate on Instagram, Twitter, and Letterboxd. Have Discord? Feel free to join the growing film community there at syndicate.com forward slash Discord, where you can catch myself along with other podcasters and listeners talking about this movie and others. But if we miss anything during this conversation, please send us a message at info at syndicate.com or visit the website syndicate.com. Until next time, stop that scroll and spend more time watching. Goodbye. By the pricking of my thumbs, something wicked this way comes.